part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. If you're seated this morning, would you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15? Um, and Mother's Day, Father's Day, you know, those, they really are loaded holidays. I mean, it really is. It's loaded with emotion. And whether you've recently went through, uh, you know, kind of a change in your life uh, uh, in that category, uh, you know, in, in that relationship or not, it's just a loaded, loaded day. And it's a day of great celebration for many. It's also a very hard place for some people. And trying to get a grasp on that is, is really hard. And so this morning, instead of kind of going to the next chapter of James, I decided that we would focus on um, God's Father's heart this morning. And, and it really isn't too much of a departure from James and what we've been studying. Remember, in James chapter 1, we looked at a couple major themes, and that is that uh, God is just who he is. And as we were going through trials, that God and his sovereignty, that's our resting place, not in the circumstances we find ourselves, but in who God is. And then James goes on and he begins to, to, to talk about temptations. And remember we looked at a couple of weeks ago that the greatest temptation that we will ever face is, is not kind of some kind of sin out there that is some kind of a material sin, but it's that sin in the heart and the mind to doubt the sufficiency and the sovereignty of God. Greatest temptation is, is to question the character of God. And so this morning we really don't depart from the, the method and the means by which James has been instructing us, when we really come and, and we have an illustrative picture of who God is and how we can trust him. And, and there's a thousand pictures in the Bible of God. We see him as strong. We see him as all these different things, very sufficient. And, and yet the most endearing to me and the most endearing to many theologians over the years that, that had so much great theology, they said, you know, when you boil it down, it all comes down to this truth. And he's a heavenly father. And he's made provision for us to become his children. That all the great theology, if you just took all the greatest truths in the world and all these theological truths that many of our minds cannot even begin to capture, so do you really want to know what it's all about? It's about him being a heavenly father. And we really see that in the New Testament. That 165 times, uh, I believe it was, that Jesus used uh, reference to his father. Paul uses it 45 times. We see John using it. We, we see all these references to the Heavenly Father, almost introducing a new concept because in the Old Testament, we see really holy, majestic God. He's only referred to as Father a few times, and in most of those situations, it's Father in the sense of Father of a nation, not in this interpersonal way that, that we see reflected in the New Testament. So in Luke chapter 15, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if maybe you're new to, to, to following in, in faith and just trying to learn, that's in the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels. And in Luke chapter 15, uh, starting with verse uh, uh, 11, we get into a third story. It's kind of a trilogy and uh, where three stories are told by Jesus, and they're all interconnected about searching and finding and celebrating and the last of those is one that's a little bit different from the first two. It is about searching. It's about finding. It's about celebrating. But it really starts to drive home a point that I believe that Jesus had as he addressed all three of those parables. What we see there is not just that Jesus was into storytelling because people like a good story, even though people do like a good story. There was always a point to the parables. There was always a kingdom truth, and there was always a truth about God. 
There's always a truth about man. Luke chapter 15, we see these two truths come out because we see a crowd that had come and they had gathered around and, and yet within that crowd, that mass of a crowd, were really two different types of people. And we see that reflected all the way back in, in the first two verses before he even starts to tell the stories. He tells us about the situation so that we can get the context. Look what he says, Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and he eats with them. There's a crowd of people there, and as they gathered around, Jesus begins to kind of discern that there's really two different types of people that have gathered. Not that there was a them and an us, and that there was, you know, uh, the red jerseys against the blue jerseys, but he could discern their heart and their minds, and he says, you know, there's really kind of two different groups of people here this morning. In verse 1, he said that there's a group of people here, tax collectors, sinners, and what were they doing? What does it say? They were drawing near. I mean, we, we want to hear uh, of this Messiah. We want to hear these words of life. We want to hear transforming truths so that we can leave here differently than when we came in. So they were drawing near. Can you almost anticipate that? You know, that you know, as Jesus began to speak, that they were kind of leaning even forward. You know, they, did, they were drawing near. Not just in mind, maybe not just physically, but spiritually they were drawing near. But look at verse 2. What does it say? And the Pharisees, th- these are the religious people of the day. These are the Jewish leaders, the ones that were very much wanted to be obedient to the law. And, and what did they do when they saw the ministry of Christ and the words of Christ? They grumbled because they said, okay, Jesus, you're not doing it like you're supposed to do it. You're actually eating with sinners. There's actually two groups of people there. Uh, one, this tax collectors and, and the sinners, socially the great unwashed, the evil, the rejected, and the other, the religious, the pious. The ones that society said, okay, these are the elite. So you have two different groups. And, and while they look there, we see this drawing near, we see this grumbling, this different kind of reaction to the ministry of Christ. To those who recognize that they were broken, that they were sinners, it, it says they were drawing near. They saw invitation in the words of Christ. To those who had all the spiritual facts, Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, they, they made their, their kind of way in life by gathering facts and information. They saw the ministry of Christ of, of confrontation. And, and in reality, the guys, that's how we would come to the Word this morning. We come to the ministry of Christ in that same way. There are many of you that would gather this morning and say, okay, I see the words of Christ as an invitation for the neediness that I have, for my brokenness. I mean, we just have to tell the truth that there's some that maybe could come in this morning, even in this assembly, and have a little bit more of that confrontational spirit. That God is directing and moving, or we see the Word of God directing in one way, and you're, just, you're confronting that. Hey, God, that's not the box that you belong in. You're not telling me the things that I want to hear. This is not what I believe about you. You're just different from what I thought. And a lot of times if we go back to James, those are, the, those are the kind of thoughts that come. When we're facing trials and temptations and all those kind of things, we begin to question the very character of God. And so this morning you've come, and, and you're really coming this morning kind of in that inviting heart or in that confronting heart. Look at this parable. Again, there's three different ones. There was a lost sheep, there was a lost coin, and now there's a lost son. 
But as we look into it, because we're going to come back to the second part of this story, which I really think it was the emphasis of this story. I think he was talking to the whole crowd, but the, really the point of it was to those Pharisees. And we'll see that next week in the older brother. But this week we want to look at this first brother that was there, the younger brother. And look what it says about him. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and 12. And he said that, as Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Jesus wastes no time whatsoever in telling us how rebellious this young son is. We, we may not get the fullness of that in, in our culture, but basically he was coming up in a culture that, even like today, you, you get an inheritance when? When your parent has passed. And, and yet here his father is very much living, and, and yet he comes and he says, will you give me what's coming to me? Now everybody in that crowd, I, I believe those sinners, those tax collectors, they would have seen that this is just wrong. But the Pharisees and the religious people that really had all the laws that kind of governed even social things would have said, man, this is really wrong. So everybody in that crowd would have said, this, this, there's just something that is not correct about this. It broke every social, every moral, and every legal code. And in essence, I, I believe what Jesus was trying to tell us, that this young son comes, he said, I would rather have your possessions than have you. I mean, how else can you read that? I'd rather have what you can give me than having you. Well, man, that's the heart of humanity, isn't it? When I evaluate my marriage, when I evaluate my, my parenting, when I, I mean, is there not that part of me? Isn't there not that part of you? So saying, I'm in it just as much for what you can do for me than what I can do for you. Not just for relationship's sake. I, I'm here because uh, this is kind of a, a benefiting factor of this relationship. It, it works good. And there's a part of that humanity that's in this younger son. And every one of those people that are gathered there, I, I think they would have gathered, I mean, they would have gotten that right away. And, and so we see this bold request. We see a, a sense of entitlement. We see a sense of greed, a sense of injustice in this young son asking for his inheritance. And to make matters worse, the younger brother really doesn't have any redeeming intentions with this uh, inheritance. But we read about that a little bit later on. But it's not like he said, Dad, I found this young company. It's called Apple. And this guy named Steve Jobs is just starting, and I think it's going to be really big. We don't see something like that. We don't see that he's looking to the future. What we see is that he's looking very much just to his instant pleasure. Now, I grew up with the King James. And in the King James, I always remember this because when my pastor would preach it, he said, and the young son, the prodigal son, went away and spoiled away everything in riotous living. When you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't know what riotous living is. But my mind could fill in the blanks pretty good. I'm going, man, riotous living, man. This guy was out in one way having a blast, but he was just squandering all this money. Well, that's what we see here. Look at what it says in, in verse 13. Jesus wastes no time. Now, remember, who is the one telling this story? Jesus. Who's in control of all the facts? Jesus. The characters. 
the reactions, everything. Jesus is telling a story. He's in total control. There's a purpose of every word that we see in this parable. And so when we go to verse 13, it says, not many days later. In other words, there was a sense of urgency. Not only was this young son rebellious, but he couldn't get away fast enough. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. I still like the King James on that one, riotous living. So if you're going to stop right there and you say, okay, man, what is the moral of the story? Two sons. We're going to read out a little bit later on. One son stayed home, did pretty much what he was told to do. This other son goes off into riotous living. And if we stopped right there, we'd say, okay, what is the moral of this story? And we could conclude, perhaps in our mind, that the moral of this story is be a good son. Don't be a bad son. Don't be greedy. Don't be disrespectful. Don't do those things. Moral of the story, don't be a bad son. Folks, will you please just X that out of your mind? That's not the moral of this parable. He wasn't trying to give us a moral lesson. He's trying to give us two things. He's trying to tell you the truth about God and the truth about yourself. That was the intention of this parable. He's trying to give us kingdom truths about the essence of humanity and the very essence and the beauty of God. So if you stop right there, you'd get a moral story. That's not the point. X that out of your mind. The story doesn't stop there. Jesus continues because the point wasn't about don't be a bad son. He wasn't trying to say don't be greedy, don't be this, don't be that, don't be disrespectful. That's not the point. The point he's trying to show us an inner truth. Look at verse 14 through 16. And when he had spent everything, this younger brother... When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent uh, him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. And again, I I heard this first maybe as an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kid, and, and your mind begins to really color different things as you hear the word of God. And in my mind, I was painting this picture of this boy out there feeding pigs, which I didn't think would be so awful. I mean, I'm an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid. He kind of liked pigs. But when it got to that part that it said that he was longing to eat the pods that they had, in other words, what, what do pigs eat? What, what is the, the, I guess, the, the slop, you know, all, all the leftovers, Okay. And so he's feeding the pigs, and what is he longing for? Even the pig slop. And even as an eight or nine, ten-year-old boy, when I first heard this story, I was going, that's amazing. Man, I, I wouldn't want to be that boy. Yeah, it's kind of fun to hang out with pigs if they're pets, but you know, for a Jewish boy, if we really take into the context of this culture, this is the most offensive thing that they could ever imagine. Number one, that you were even around swine. And all the things that that meant, that meant you were spiritually unclean. It put a separation there spiritually. But more than that, I began, as I was a kid, just reading that. Wow, he wanted the pig slop? He was that hungry? Jesus tells us this, I believe, for, for, for two reasons. Number one, I, I believe he wants us to see the emptiness of sin. 
Folks, sin affects every aspect of our life. God has made us physical, mental, spiritual, emotional people. The complexities of human life, the gift of God, we're very complex. And I don't know about you, but, but we can't really determine day by day to separate the mental from the emotional, the emotional from the physical, the physical from the spiritual. Have you identified that in your life? That if you're having a bad spiritual day, have you noticed how that affects you kind of mentally, emotionally, and physically? How sometimes when you have a bad physical day, how that affects even your spirit? And all the, We're complex people. God made us in this complexities. These aspects of our life are intertwined. Well, I want you to know that when sin comes into our lives, folks, we can't just separate it and corral it and say, okay, that's only going to affect my mental mind or my physical being. Or this is just a part of my emotions. When sin comes into our lives, when there's disobedience and rebellion against God, it affects every aspect of our life. And it did here. Physically, this boy is dirty. He's covered in mud and filth of, of the pigs. Don't think that he really smelled all that well. Mentally, he's longing for something to eat that he would never even consider under normal circumstances. Spiritually, he's doing what is unthinkable to a Jewish boy. And emotionally, he's lonely and desperate. Jesus tells us the story. He's the one in control. He's the storyteller. He's the one that is in control of every aspect. He didn't have to tell us that this boy was longing for the pods to eat. He tells us that with an intentionality to show us the truth about ourselves. And that when we're separated from the Father, when we're separate from God... Here's the kind of neediness that comes into our lives. So he shows us, number one, the reality of sin, the emptiness of sin, and also the depravity of sin. This son isn't a little lost. He's not a little misguided. But would you, you answer it for yourself, would you say this guy is totally lost? In the sense of he is totally lost, his barometer of life, or his, you know, his guidance in life? Not just in a moral sense, but this guy has lost everything that's important. That his compass for life has kind of been just kind of rewired and it's not working. So Christ shows us the depth of sin, the the emptiness of sin, the depravity of sin. And then look what happens next. Luke 15, starting with verse 17. I will tell you, and you've heard me say this before, this is one of my favorite verses of the Bible there are certain verses that just jump out at me. Luke fifteen seventeen, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. But when he had come to himself, I love how the NIV says it. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 17 says that he came to himself. Again, I love the NIV. They came to his senses. If you've ever had a prodigal in your life, I have prayed with so many people over the years. I've prayed myself for prodigals in my life. What a great prayer. What a hard prayer. When it's your son or your daughter. God, God, they're out there kind of in a wasteland of thought, emotionally, physically, you know, uh, spiritually. God, will you, will you pray? God, will you, will you help them come to their senses? 
That's a hard prayer. It's a, it's a right prayer, but it's a hard prayer because sometimes do we really want our kids out there feeding pets? Do we really want the, the fullness of that sin to, to be realized? Because sometimes, you know how they say you have to hit rock bottom before you can start looking back up? Well, I don't know this, the whole spiritual significance of that little proverbial sentence, but I, I know this, that sometimes when we pray for the prodigal, it's a tough prayer because we realize that sometimes you have to, in order to come to your senses, you have to be at the place where this boy is. And in, in order to get to verse 17, sometimes there has to be verse 16. And that's a hard place to be. That's a hard prayer to pray for your kids, for your husband, for your wife, for your mother, a father, for a friend. How do you bring them to a place where they realize the truth about themselves? In the most basic form, I believe that this parable truly is about two eternal truths. The first one is Christ wants us to know and understand the truth about ourselves. Isn't that the greatest prayer that we could ever pray for a prodigal? God, will you show them the truth about this? Not will they just correct this, will they do this? Because we want something a little bit more than just a correction of the outside morality. I mean, granted, if there's somebody in your life that's in rebellion and they're prodigal and they're kind of living in one direction, in one way we would be quite satisfied on the surface for them to change their moral life. Is that not correct? Just making wiser choices. But what do we really want? What do we really want? That's just a change of moral choices on the outside for a day or for a week, for a year. What we want is a heart change. We don't just want information to change. We just want this transformation of heart and life. One of the great truths of this parable is for us to understand the truth of ourselves and, and, and to understand that, Father, apart from you, there's no life. And yet that was not the mindset of this young son. In fact, if anything, if we could kind of fill in maybe some words to to that occasion, he would say, okay, Father, I want my inheritance now because I believe that life apart from you is better than life with you. That's where he was. Luke 15, 19. He begins to realize the truth about himself. And he begins to realize the weight of his sin. Look what he says in Luke 15:19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I don't know that the Bible has ever called any one of us in our recognition of sin to be self-depreciating. Well, we live in a world where, folks, we, we have so centered on ourselves to be appreciated that any offense, any admittance of wrong in our lives is seen as self-depreciating. I don't believe that Christ's call on our life has ever been into self-depreciation. What it is into self-realization. And there is a difference between, oh, I am the, as Paul said, I'm the, the, the chief of all sinners. I don't believe that he was self-depreciating. I believe that he was recognizing gospel truth and that his need was deep. I mean, Paul, among all people, could sit there and say, well, you know, I, I'm bad, and I realize I'm bad. I'm just, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that guy. 
But the more that he looked at his Savior, the more that he began to see the gospel at work, the more that he saw the holiness of God, what did he see? He saw in him, I'm the chief of all sinners. So, So what we begin to see here as this begins to unfold, as this relationship is broken, we begin to see very much at that point that the son is starting to have, that part of this coming to your senses means that you start to realize the truth about yourself. I think it's one of the best prayers we could ever pray for people, especially hurting people, people that are wavered, people that are rebellious. God, will you, will you allow them to come to their senses? And part of that, the first part of that, will realize the truth about themselves. You know, even the way that we, change, that we feel about our father changes. You know, when you're a five-year-old and you look at your daddy, you know, it's like, my daddy can do anything. Then you get about eight or nine, and you're going, okay, my dad is smarter than your dad. Remember that era of your life? And then you hit the teen years, and you begin to wonder if dad even has a clue. I mean, you go through that rebellious time where you're going, okay, God, you, dad, you're so, number one, you're so old. You're so irrelevant to what's going on in the real world. Isn't it amazing that there can be a change of mindset in this relationship to a father? When they're young, you can do anything. You go from hero to zero almost overnight. And it's one of the most frightening parts. I don't want to be discouraging this morning, but if you have really young ones, that day is going to come. And I hope that it's a very small journey for you and it doesn't last for, for weeks or months or years, but it does come and you go from hero to zero and you're going, where did that come from? And all of a sudden your jokes are dumb. Dad, please don't say that. And you try to do little actions that they used to laugh at. And now you're just weird. And then you get married. And maybe God blesses you with kids of your own. And you find yourself calling up dad. Because dad's a little bit smarter than you gave him credit for. And then your dad passes. And you long for that one time that you could talk to your dad again. Do you see the transformation of heart and mind? Hero to zero, and then this longing? We are people that are stand not in need of information. Folks, we stand in need of transformation. That's what we need. I need this mind and this heart to be transformed like Romans 12, 1 and 2, more and more, Romans 8, 29, into the image and the conformity of Jesus Christ. It's our greatest need. And so to come to our senses, number one, we need a, a sense of what is the truth about ourselves. But secondly, we need to understand the truth about our Father. Look at verse 17 and 18 again. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Folks, I don't believe that this is just a moment of conviction, and he feels really bad. I think that the thing that eggs him on to to desire to go back is the character of the father. He begins to think not just about his own sin and his own neediness, but the character of his father.
earlier verses, we see this, this kind of mindset that man, he saw his father as restrictive. And a lot of people see God that way. Man, if I become a Christian, if I follow God, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that. And we see this restrictive God. When we come to the realization of who we really are and then who he really is, we don't see a restrictive God. What we see is a merciful, loving, holy, just God who is a providing God and the intimacy of a father. He begins to realize this truth that his father is a kind provider, that even the servants in his father's house have, have plenty. And so what does it compel him to do? That's because he's convicted of his sin. That's part of it. But he looks up, okay, where do I do with this conviction? See, it's one thing, I mean, any wise person can make you feel bad about something. I grew up in a church that preached guilt every single week. I left church every single week like this. Woe is me. And, and, And that wasn't that it wasn't a good start. They just never directed me back to the gospel, the good news. They told me the bad news about how bad it was. They just didn't show me the good news of the gospel. And folks, if we stop the story right here and all we have is conviction without a place and a relationship and a father to go to, then we've lost the heart of the gospel. But Jesus tells the story. He's in control of every word. He begins to say, okay, this boy, and when he comes to his senses, when the conviction hits him that he has done wrong, where does he decide to go? Okay, I'm going to go back to the father. Why? Because of the character of the father. If he did not believe that his father not only was just, but was kind and loving, do you think he would have ever taken a step back? No, he would have headed in the opposite direction. But there's something about the character of his father, even in his own rebellion, that is the boy's rebellion, that that persuades him to turn his life that way. So he begins to go home. Look what happens, verse 20 through 24. And he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and he ran to him and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's the, here's the realization I've come to. I have broken every tie. I've broken the relationship. I, I cannot stand here in any worth of my own. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The boy comes back. He, he's willing to be a servant. And the father says, you're not a servant, you're a son. And every one of these, the robe, the, the ring, the signet ring, the servants didn't wear sandals or shoes. Every sign this father is making claim, you are my son, you are my son. I claim you. You're not a servant. Verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this is my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. See, the focus of this parable is not really about a rebellious son. It certainly has that character. It's even not about the depth of sin. I believe that the greatest truth that comes through this is that we, it's about the love of the father. And what is the character of God? It's a father filled with compassion, a father who runs to his wayward children, a father who embraces us even in our filth. If I understand theologically what happens without the Holy Spirit, my eyes are not even open to the gospel. 
I'm not come running to God. I see my need and I begin to, to explore it and God opens my eyes to the character, His character. And when I come into His presence, He runs to me. I mean, I, I want you to understand that the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, there would have been a collective gasp when Jesus hit that part. Because if a Jewish father did not run, number one, you didn't lift up your skirt and to run because to run you had to kind of lift up your robe a little bit and that was just seen as... Okay, not proper. Number two, you would never run to a rebellious son. You would wait for that son to come crawling on his knees back to you. And yet what we see is a pursuing God here. Folks, I want you to know, if you're in a point of rebellion, if you've ever, you know, just rebelled against God, when we come to our senses, when he opens our eyes to our sin and our rebellion, what we find is the compassion of God, and we see a pursuing God. And he comes, the robe, the ring, the sandals, all signs of a son, not of a servant. The son doesn't get what he deserves. He doesn't get justice. What he gets is grace and mercy and full restoration of that which has been lost, not on the basis of his performance, but on the love of the Father. What do we find out about this Father here? is that you and I don't have a relationship with God based on our performance. It's probably the greatest lie that Satan would ever give to us. That somehow God loves you better yesterday because you really had a good spiritual day than tomorrow when you really are going to have a bad spiritual day. That somehow God's mood changes with you and that it's based on your performance. And it's not biblical. It blows the mind, but it's not biblical. What we see here is a father who loves in spite of us being dirty and smelly. Do you realize that there's never a sin, and this is not an encouragement to go out and sin boldly, but uh, that there's not a sin that you could ever do, that there's nothing in your closet, nothing in your past, that God just looks and, and says, that is so offensive, I don't want you. That in Christ Jesus, all that is cleansed, all of that is forgiven. Christ goes to the cross not just for big sins, folks. I mean, not just for little sins, but for, for those ones that are so smelly and dirty. He goes because we have need. What we see here is a God of grace. Even though he is a God of justice, that justice all came through the work of Christ. It's not that God just turned his head to our sin and says, okay, I'm going to forget that. No, he placed all of that sin on Christ so that there would be justice done. But for you and I, we're the recipients of grace. And what we see is a God of celebration. When there's transformed mind and transformed relationship, God celebrates. I, I believe that one of the highest forms of worship, you know, we talk about worshiping God, is when there's a transformed mind. If you leave today transformed mind, you, there's a thought, a concept of God that you can embrace, biblical, and you just see him with the God that he is. That's worship. And if there's worship, I believe that there's celebration. God celebrates well. When there was death and now there's life. When somebody's lost and now they're found. I mean, the two previous uh, parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, it's all about this pursuit until they find it. And when they find it, what do they do? They go, no, they celebrate. Next week we're going to look at the rest of this passage because... It, Really, I believe that the weight of the passage actually goes to the other son. 
And we can see that, and it goes perfectly with James chapter 2 about how we are not to show preference to people. We're not to give people the best seat. What we find out is that the foot of the cross, that all this ground is even. It's all, nobody's a step in front of you. Nobody's a step behind you. That the gospel compels us to treat one another in a very equal way. This picture of the Father, it called on. Uh, Paul said it this way in Romans 8:15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The intimacy of that crying, crying out to God. John said it this way in 1 John 3, 1, How great is the love of the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. On this Father's Day, two greatest truths that I believe that God would want to transform your mind and your heart with. Number one, the truth about yourself and our great need. But that is insufficient without the second part of that truth, the truth about God and who he is. Is he holy God? Is he a just and jealous God? You better believe it. Don't ever water that down. The scripture never waters that down. But what we see in the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the promise and the covenant that he makes is that he is a father. We didn't go to him and say, hey, we got a deal. Will you let us be your children and you be kind of like our father? It is not the people prompting that proposition to God. It is God bringing that proposition to man. It is God saying, initiating and pursuing and saying, I will be your father and I will give you the ability to be my child through the finished work of my real child, my son, who will make total provision for you. Can can we show that last picture? I, I came across this years ago. I don't know. You know how it's just a picture is worth a thousand, maybe a million words? And this picture has always brought great joy and celebration to my heart and mind. It's from the author who was reading this parable of the lost son. And he just shows this embrace of, of this father coming to this smelly, dirty child who came to his senses. And he comes back because he knows the character of the father. And what he finds is not justice. He doesn't find a, a, a finger saying, okay, you considered me dead. You wanted all my money. Now, now you come. No, he doesn't see that. What he sees is a father who runs to him, embraces him, and all of his dirt and grime. And says, I love you, son. You were dead, and now you're alive. And we are going to celebrate. That's the hope of new life in Jesus Christ. And I pray that you have experienced that. I pray that this morning you could say, I have no doubt, Pastor, that I am a child of the living God. Not because I've performed well, not because I can say Ten Commandments, not because I've done this, but because I have realized my need and my sin, and I have come to the one who is sufficient to pay for that. And I found a father who ran to me with his sufficiency, and he's loved me just like that. If that isn't your story this morning, if you truly don't have a clue if you're a child of God or not, and what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, I'd love to talk with you. You can call me up. You can email me. You can talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you. Because I I don't know that there's a more beautiful picture of, of what the gospel is than what we begin to see 
and the, the loving relationship that God has established father to children throughout his word. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you today. You are a good, good father. That's who you are. And Father, we stand in need of transforming truth, that truth about who we really are, not in a self-depreciating way, but in a self-realization, Father, that, that apart from you, we are depraved, Father. And Father, it's not until that reality, when you kind of show us that reality, that we begin to see, Father, you open our mind to the sufficiency of what Christ has done. So, Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, for the celebration of the gospel, that there is not a lost hope. There is no one here today. There's nobody in this world that is so far gone that they have lost hope to ever being restored into a right relationship with you, holy God. So, Father, I just pray that your spirit would would bring that upon us, Father. For us who are really struggling emotionally in the physical world of just loss of of relationship with the earthly father. Father, I pray your sufficiency to the needs of our heart and our emotions. For ones that may be rebelling right now, Father, or maybe they have children that are rebelling, Father, will will you help them to pray this morning, Father, both in the sufficiency of Christ, but also that that prodigal will just come to a sense as, Father, will you join them in, in that earnest prayer? Father, for all of our needs, we come to you, a loving Father, and we thank you for your sufficiency. We love you, we praise you, and Father, we worship you. And now we worship you in song, Father, as we pray all this in the name of the one who made it possible, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.